Hello, 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 people. This is Alfred Faber, your host here on Sound Perspective. Thank you so much for joining me again. This is a super exciting episode. Um, you'll be hearing my interview with Oscar-winning writer, director, producer George Miller. Uh, I interviewed him around mid-last year for episode one of the podcast. If you haven't listened to it yet, it's about the sound in Mad Max Fury Road. So I interviewed a lot of really interesting people for that. Uh, the sound editor, Wayne Pashley, sound designer, David White, um, Boomop, Mark Washatak. And obviously, being able to interview George Miller himself was a dream come true for a second-year uni student. Uh, so I was obviously pretty nervous, and I decided that I wanted to interview him first to get his side of the story first, but it meant that he was the first person I ever interviewed for the podcast. So... I was completely unpracticed with doing podcast interviews. I had a really bad flu and I was super nervous. So in case you were wondering, that's why I sound like a robot in this episode. Yeah, I um I love sound, I love film, but podcast hosting is not my forte. But you know what? Whatever. Uh because that's what I love about doing this podcast, that I get to talk to interesting people uh, that I probably wouldn't get to talk to otherwise. Um, anyway, I was really lucky to talk to him. Uh, thanks so much to the people who helped organize it. Stay tuned for the other interviews from episode one that I'll release eventually. There was so much interesting content that I didn't have the time to include, so I'll be rolling them all out when I have the time. Uh, this episode was edited by the fabulous, the amazing, the helpful Jamaica Blackman. Thanks, Jamaica. And without further ado, the man who needs no introduction, Dr. George Miller. I'm really fascinated by the story of you as a child uh, in Chinchilla under the floorboards of the local cinema, uh, yes. listening to um, The Thing. Yeah. Uh, and was there other movies or was it just that one It movie? was mainly that one. That, yeah. was the most, that was the one I most remember. Yeah. Um, so do you have any memories about it causing realisations about the link between sound and image? Well, that's probably the first and most striking one. The, the, the backstory is that... We grew up in a place before the internet, before there was radio, uh, but there was nothing else. So all of, all of our time was spent in play, but with my brothers and I out in the bush, that was that's all there was, except for the Saturday matinee. It was a ritual. Most people don't even know what the Saturday matinee is, but you have uh, you have a cereal. Um, there was the, the newsreel. There was the often one or two cartoons and two features, the A feature and the B feature. And it was a ritual. It was, it was a secular ritual that every kid in the town, every kid in the district would, would turn up to the cinema. The, it was the, I think it must have been the early 50s and 
or mid fifties when the thing, uh, w w the subsequently uh, this was the first version of the movie, the thing, and the lo and the local cinema owner put a box, a trunk painted black with a thing painted on, a thing painted on it in white in white paint which dripped and put chains around it and every afternoon uh, 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 that simple thing every afternoon after school everybody uh, would turn up and stare at this box and wonder what was in the thing so a kind of hysteria developed in the town where everyone wanted to go to the thing however kids were defined by whether their parents would allow them to go to the thing because it was a scary movie, or not. And we were, we, our parents said, no, you can't really go to the thing, you're too young. So what we did was we snuck in underneath the screen in the cinema, like a lot of, a lot of buildings in Queensland, they were up on stilts for, because it was, it was cooler. And so we, we listened to the thing that Saturday afternoon, not watch it. And it was really, really interesting. It was much scarier when you listened to it, when you kept the monster off the screen. Subsequently, when I saw the movie, a really, really interesting thing happened. The, he, looked, he looked like a man with kind of cabbage leaves on him. And very interestingly enough, the film was better received in Britain because... The, they had been very, very strong on, on horror and violence. The censorship was very strong on horror and violence. So they cut out. Every time you saw the thing, he'd appear momentarily and then they'd cut him out, which made him much, much more scary. And the movie was a big disappointment to me when I actually saw it. So a lot of, a lot of storytelling I've subsequently realised and, and learned through, through, through the process of it is in a sense, what you suggest, what you keep off the screen, the information you withhold is often more powerful than what you see. That's pretty evident in just about every horror movie you see today. But so, uh, so somehow I picked that up very early. Not that I ever had any intention of making films when I was young. It was just something I observed. People have said, and I, I think it's true, it's uh, that often drama is the withholding the successful, or it's a successful orchestration of the withholding of information. So you're trying to orchestrate the unfolding of a story, trying to trying to understand when, when the, in which moment do we most want the audience to know a particular bit of information. If you front load a story too much, or you give the you, you you give them information at the wrong moment, it the film can be very disjointed and most most importantly it is not in any way persuasive. So that's one thing you learn in the process, in the editing and so on, and in the way that you orchestrate the image and sound, and the two can be complementary, uh, and and they can be. And they can be very powerful if they, if they uh, if you if you're able to do that well. Uh, it's easy to say, very hard to do. Yeah. So on any of your work, not just Mad Max, um, do you imagine the oral aesthetic when you conceptualize or plan a film? And is sound 
something that you're strong in as a filmmaker? Because, for example, a lot of directors say, like, oh, I'm a very visual director or I focus on characters and actors. Is um, sound something that you think about a lot or do you leave it to other people and try to delegate? Oh, it's something I, th- I think it's your obligation as a filmmaker uh, to be very comprehensive and to really, really think about sound as you do everything else. Film, or all stories, but particularly cinema, is apprehended by the entire uh, human being. It's visceral, it's emotional, it's intellectual, it's it's cultural. You've got to, you've got to see your story in, in terms of cultural anthropology. It's to a degree spiritual and mythological when it gets to, to, to its highest level. And nothing, there is nothing that that you sort of hand over uh, to anyone else because it's all, it, 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 it's like uh, a conductor. I, I, I guess the best example uh, is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a making films is, is that you're a conductor. You have to understand all the instruments and find a way to bring them together cohesively and in a way that that somehow has meaning and, and, and to, to an audience mm. uh, and um, so yes I but but in my but, but there was no question that when I first came to cinema I was purely visual I mean I started off drawing and painting uh, all my life and it wasn't until I actually had the opportunity to make a short film and to cut it myself that I even began to understand the the, the notion of, of of cinema, let alone sound. Um, painting and drawing is essentially two dimensional. The moment you introduce the element of time, you're suddenly into narrative. So when I f- first started making films, it was purely visual. I would draw them. Uh, I would certainly write them, but it was, but but the initial thing, uh, the, the initial impulse came visually. When I made my first feature uh, w- with Byron Byron Kennedy, Byron was um, started off as a self-taught cinematographer, but he was also obsessed with sound, and our abilities were very complementary. So, you know, he was just always, he was a great mimic of make, making, he could make sounds of just about anything you like, you know, to mimic them. Uh, and he was always listening to movies rather than watching them, even though he had, he was able to, to see, to see them uh, at, you know, he had been a cameraman. But when it came to Mad Max, we ran out of money and I ended up cutting the picture in the kitchen of an apartment that someone lent us, and and he was cutting the sound. Um, So I left it all to him, and I didn't spend much time uh, listening to sound. I came to film mainly through the silent cinema. I made it my job to understand the syntax of, of film, and I was very, very influenced by a book, uh, by a book written by Kevin Brownlow, who was a scholar and a, and a critic. Uh, it was called The Parade's Gone By. And he basic, his basic thesis was that this new language, which is probably 130 years old, uh, this 
and it's a language that is universal and we learn it uh, before we can read virtually every culture has basically was was basically locked off basically defined before sound um, he mainly in the action movies in the comedies of Buster Keaton Harold Lloyd to some degree Charlie Chaplin and he said virtually all everything was defined by then when sound came along for about six months in Hollywood there was the sound recordist basically told everybody what to do I don't know if you've seen pictures but there were massive um, big boxes like telephone boxes where the cameras were the camera couldn't move he would tell the actors who had come from the theater or from silent cinema how to speak how loudly to speak he would tell the cinematographer where the camera should go and so on <clears throat> and then people got a bit fed up with that because it became very static for a long time the technology limited the agility of the camera and gradually cameras and lights became more flexible and and so on and film once again got into the it wasn't recorded theater it wasn't just the proscenium so sound really really found itself again uh it took it took about two or three decades and sound and and and, and then a few great directors came along who were very very sound aware uh, sound aware uh, particularly George Stevens, who did Shane and movies like that. So just going back to my, myself, uh, when uh, I was mainly interested in pictures and I, and I made the first Mad Max, and, the, and indeed, right, you know, even the last one, I always made them as silent movies. The idea was that... The, if they if they played as silent movies, and they were coherent, and you could read them as silent movies, then with the addition of sound, they were going to play that much more clearly and, and persuasively. Um, then, and then, what happened when Byron died uh, in uh, after Mad Max Two? Um, we you know, I suddenly thought, oh boy, I've got to, I've got to pay attention to sound now. And it, 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 exactly like working with composers. I'm not musical. I, I know I studied piano or something when I was at school. It's just not in me. But, but I got to work with some of the world's great composers over time. I, you know, John Williams, Jerry Goldsmith, Maurice Shah, um, and even in the modern era, um, some just wonderful composers and I made it my business to understand how to talk to them and began to think began to think a lot about the purpose or the function of music in, 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 in movies and it became very much part of what I needed to do and, and, and in order to tell the story and the same with sound and to I, I now feel um, a degree of authority in how to use sound in film. I certainly think about it. I write them into the screenplay. Not that I recommend everybody write sound in, into the film, but if if sound is the primary moment 
in which on which the 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 drama is carried, then then you I write it into the screenplay. I don't write every sound into into the screenplay. It's implied by by, by what you describe. But but when you know there are very clear moments when, when sound has primacy and and. And it's very important, I think, to try to get them into the screenplay, particularly if it's if it's a screenplay written by a director. If you're a screenwriter, and by all means try, but I don't think there's an obligation to put every single detail in, only when it's dramatically potent. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. thanks. So, so yeah, look, um, I, I've, I always, just let me just say, on the action movies, and... You know, it's motion pictures, they're movies. Uh, and I think that's why Kevin Brownlow really got to understand that, that it was in the in those action stories where the language was first defined. And, you know, I, I, always, I always had the notion that you see with your ears and you hear with your eyes, particularly when it comes to impact. Um, you can put a big loud sound in the middle of an impact, but if if you can find an explosive way to show an impact, uh, you can almost hear it, even though you're watching it. And the and the opposite applies. I I think I find one of the things that I think a mistake a lot of people make when they're putting together kinetic sequences is that they and a lot of directors do this. I dare say it's a mistake because they, on the early cuts, they fill in really, really good sound effects. On the, uh, so they show films even while they're cutting the the action and the sequences. They're putting in sound effects so that so that they basically sell the cut to who's ever watching it, studio to themselves and so on. But quite often. You, you, you're sort of um, you're fooled by the sound effect rather than what you're actually watching. I, I always say that if you can if you can if you can sell it visually first, and then add the sound effect, then it's going to be much more p- powerful. Now there's going to be some sequences and some movies. I haven't seen it yet, but what's that movie that was made recently? Um, about the family having to keep quiet. Uh, a quiet place. A quiet it's place. It's brilliant. Yes. It's really good. That's a perfect, now, that's a film. I'd, I'd love to read the screenplay of that because mm-hmm. it must be just all about the sound or absence of sound. Yeah. And, and, and now that, uh, that's a project which needs to pay careful attention from the get-go. I mean, it's conceived on that notion. So, um, so... So it varies film to film. I'm mainly talking about action films at the moment. When it's a drama, it's a different thing. Uh, um, but even in drama, there are moments when sound is incredibly critical to to, to the experience. Uh, so Ben Osmo, um, when I talked to him, he told me about the vast effort that went into the production sound and wild track on Fury Road, the recording of the vehicles and stuff. Um, so was... The, the extent of production sound, your idea, and was it important to you that you get the original recordings of these vehicles themselves? Well, it's a... Uh, now, that's a lot, probably a long answer. First of all, Ben 
we, I've worked with Ben for a long, long time, Ben Osmer. He's a great sound recordist. But he's also a great filmmaker. What you want in everyone who works on the film is someone who both, both does their particular task, their particular discipline, but also, above that, does whatever they can to get a film made. It's not just doing their specific job and feeling, okay, I've done my job, and, and regardless of the connection to all other work. Now, we worked together on Lorenzo's Oil, and this is a pretty typical story. We were doing this very, very difficult scene where the boy Lorenzo was having a, a seizure. Yeah. And I don't know if you know this yeah. story, but, 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 but he's having a seizure and his mother's holding him. And we actually invented a little, I didn't want to fake it very much, but we invented a little machine to, 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 to vibrate so that, that he wasn't faking the, the seizure um, that he would lay on. But we couldn't fit it into this particular shot because his mother was holding him, Susan Sarandon was holding him, and, um, and, and trying to soothe him and she was in a chair and we and, and, and we tried to figure out how to do this shot because, because it, was, it was just too fake otherwise. And Ben, who was in another room, it was in a small house, had, a, had something, had a little screen. He was always watching the set. And he's a very elegant man. He, he, he came up to me and said, George, uh, can I, I've got an idea. He said, I think I can lie under the chair, hold the young actor's head in my hand, vibrate his head in a way without being seen by the camera because he, he was watching, it was one of the first films in which we had video split. And so here's the sound recordist now doing what, I guess, practical effects people were doing or... Or, or what everyone else was meant to be doing, figuring out how to solve the problem. He was there not just recording sound, he was there getting the movie made. And we got the shot that was very convincing. So, you know, I try to work with Ben on every single film we do. And when it came to Fury Road, it was a big, that, that was an epic enterprise. I realised very early that he wasn't going to be able to get pristine dialogue. There was always these big vehicles moving. We mic'd people closely. He wasn't able to get in there, in, the, in that small cabin. It was always on the move. And even if we were doing simulated travel, there were wind machines. So it was almost impossible to get good sound. Number two, there's not much dialogue in the movie. There's, it, 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 so, so he became hugely, hugely... Uh, influential on the movie by try, by understanding what the movie needed. The biggest thing by far was communication between everybody. So he found ways that everybody, some, some scenes had, you know, up to a hundred people all in different vehicles. You had actors doing things uh, with a hell of a lot of sound and noise. All the, all the vehicles had no exhaust on them, so they were very, very loud. So he found a way to, to put earwigs on everybody 
on significant people so that there was a system by which people could communicate to each other so that I could direct the actors. I was from a remote van following behind. I was in a remote van following behind or I was in this thing called the edge arm, which was the, the camera uh, which, which got in amongst the action. And it was very noisy. It was like being in the middle of a wild video game all the way through. And he had a huge influence on the safety of the film with communication. This wasn't the job of the normal sound recorders. Uh, he got fairly decent guide tracks, but eventually most of the film had to be ADR. The other th thing we realised, and he realised, well, if I can't, if I can't shoot, uh, you know, get, get the dialogue, which didn't, wasn't the most important thing, I'll make sure I get the best sound for the sound effects guys that we could. Because, first of all, the sound of the vehicles on the gravel, the, the sound of these exhausts, the, 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 none of these vehicles were legal, road legal. They had to be transported. So, so the, the, if you sat next to the so-called Giga Horse, which was a, um, not a V8, a V16, it had, and it was it was an authentic vehicle. It was two V8 engines together, a massive exhaust. I mean, the vibration, the sound of it was enormous. The war rig and and all of these vehicles were unique. So there's no point in going out and getting sounds that weren't that weren't authentic. And he put his team together to get those, and they and they and they lent they lent enormous amount. To, to the film. So, as I say, the sound recordist in Ben, ben Osmo's case was, was, was doing what was necessary to get the film made rather than just doing a, a good job of getting good, pristine sound. Mm. So that was something that, that was decided relatively early <clears throat> because it was my intention to... I've always found the best action sequences were those that weren't supported by music, but that you could use the sounds of the vehicles to almost as their own instruments. Each different vehicle had a different voice, a different sound and so on. And that was the intention earlier on. So recording the sounds of the vehicles and was, was very, very important early on. <clears throat> what, I, and what I thought was that the actual music would be played by the the guy on the guitar, the Duff Warrior, and, and the Tygo drummers on the back. And that was going to be our music. I initially thought there should be no music. And then as we got the film cut, I, I began to realise that the music is kind of a an internal narrator at, uh, of, of, the, of the story. It, it, and, and this film is allegorical. It's not just the specifics of what happens, but it's also moment to moment, but it also is allegorical to the extent that everything represents something or invites you to see the connections to history and in particular to modern day. So that, so that for instance, when the Morton Joe uh, dispenses and withholds water, that's the equivalent of economies and money and, and, and any resource. So I, I realised at a certain point that the film 
which could have been very monotonous sound-wise, did need music. And in, in, in a number of sequences, uh, there was no sound, uh, uh, no music, and just relied on the sound of the vehicles. And other times, uh, the music basically supported uh, the, the, the narrative in a way that just sound itself could not. And particularly when, in the final chase, things became much more epic and and in some way we're trying to introduce the, the humanity of the people, these people you know, in extremists in this very bleak world, um, we, we ended up uh, relying a lot on music. But that wasn't my intention at first. At first. And it was, uh, that was something that was discovered on the way. I know that uh, creative pre-production on Fury Road was really extensive. Uh, stuff like storyboarding, um, and it's really evident in stuff like the backstories. So uh, was this amount of thought also put into what the soundscape would be like from the beginning, or did that emerge in the editing? Look, it's both, but I don't think you can conceive of a film without thinking of the sound, particularly a film like this. The strategies we used on the sound came very early, whether or not we adjusted them as time went on. Um, so I, I find it just second nature to think of sound now. Um, I don't, I know on the screenplays I'm working on now, there, in certain moments, it's very, very specific. There's very, very specific description of the sound because, it, because they are they are dramatically valid. I don't describe every sound if they're not important, but when they are important uh, and they have some emotional content, some dramatic content, they are very very explicit in in in, in the screenplay, and 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 even in a you know quite an intimate intimate drama. Uh, it just sort of becomes second nature now. I'm really intrigued by the way you talk about Joseph Campbell's theories in regards to uh, Mad Max's international success. Um, Do you explicitly aim for universally compelling stories? Putting sound aside, in order to tell a story, particularly for cinema, it needs to tick every box. One of them is the universality of a story. And I can go... I could spend hours talking about that. Um, but it's many others as well. As I said before, cinema uh, is a whole body experience. It's, it's experienced by every part of the human being. And, and, and when I talked earlier about, you know, from going from the visceral, and, you know, all the senses and so on, or the, the ones, the two most obvious ones, uh, vision and sound, um, the all the way up to mythological. A film has to, a film has to answer all of those. So it's, it's, and it's very very hard to do. I mean, it's easy to say, and great to have these theories. But I realise that the stories that are most insistent, the ones I have to tell, have to cover all those things. So 
it's it's not the only thing, this so-called universality. And I think it applies, by the way, to all artistic endeavours. It applies to music, it applies to art, performing arts, um, literature. <clears throat> there must be, it must leap from the specific to the general in some way. It must tell us, usually by metaphor or allegory, something larger. It's the reason why we tell stories. Uh, even in documentaries, if you look at the great documentaries, they managed to do that. I think that's a, that's a sine qua non of all artistic endeavours. Uh, why did you give the sound jobs to uh, Australian sound professionals? And is it important to you to work in the Australian industry? Oh, yes, it's, it's, it's critical. I mean... One of the problems with the Australian industry is we've never really reached a critical mass of production so that people are constantly employed. Um, the, it, it, which is such a pity because we, there's, there is a talent drain that the best of not only the people in front of the cameras but the best of the people who, who are behind the cameras end up doing their work internationally. So it's a, Australia is a great way to, to, to hone your skills. The country which does it far more successfully than we do is New Zealand. In a city a tenth the size of Sydney, a city of 400,000 people, Wellington, New Zealand, has the greatest accumulation of, a, of t- greatest talent pool in the world filmmaking talent pool. It's not me saying this, this is Jim Cameron saying this. And it's because I've had continuity of production through Peter Jackson and Richard Taylor and Fran Walsh and all that group of people have been making those, you know, the Lord of the Rings, obviously, but all the all the TV and stuff that predated that, that led to the Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. And now you've got the best filmmakers in the world working there. You've got Jim Cameron down there doing all his avatars. You had Steven Spielberg doing their their work there. That consistent work, that critical mass, which not only keeps the talent that they develop, but but basically develops the talent to to a world-beating level, is, is, is what we sort of have dissipated in this country. So it's really, really important that... Uh, that you know, we, we, we work with as, as, as many people as we can, uh, that we can. What happened here in Australia, by the time we got to do the sound on Mad Max, um, we, there, there weren't any top mixes uh, available. They were working on other things. And by then the studio, Warner Brothers, had decided that the film was worth putting effort into. And... We had we brought in some Americans, um, and because it needed that very very high end skill level, um, there were three of them. Uh, they're all multi award winning guys. One of them um, didn't work out. I don't know for whatever reason his heart wasn't in it and wasn't really responding. To, to what the film was offering. But luckily, I ended up working with with two 
extraordinary people, uh, Chris Jenkins and Greg Rudloff. They were, they were very elegant people who were masterful when it came to sound. Someone like Chris Jenkins was someone who'd mixed music uh, with some of the biggest bands in the world. He just remixed for the cinema. Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Heart Club's band, Lonely Heart's Club band. These people taught me uh, about sound in a way. The learning curve went up enormously for me. Um, in, in, in the, to take something as big, as, as a massive, massive soundtrack, like Fury Road, with, with intense music. Tom Holkenberg, uh, Junkie XL, who did the music. Again, a very brilliant man. He, he, someone who could not only artistically powerful, but intellectually powerful. Somebody who could, the first person who could just explain to me in detail, a layperson, almost the mathematics of music, why particular music has effects and so, and so on. That, that group of people it, uh, really had a huge influence on, on, on the end result of Fury Road. After the film was cut, essentially as a silent movie, and it worked as, if you watch the movie uh, as a silent movie, um, you can see, and, 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 and Margaret Sixel, who edited, was obsessed with that, to, to make it coherent, not just sort of band-aiding over the action with a lot of quick cuts and refreshing the scene every two seconds for no other reason than just to make it look busy and, and then load it up with with bombastic noises. Uh, it, it, it was it was it was a very, very carefully orchestrated process and that was really, really important. Um, so it's a film in which I learned the, 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 a, a huge amount um, how to how to pull out sounds. The, there's a tendency, and I think it came from the early days, and I'm interested in the question that you had. What's the difference that you noticed between the early Mad Maxes, the three in sound, and, and this one? Could you explain that? I'd say the, the kind of technical complexity of the sounds of the vehicles, and they all have very distinctive characteristics to me, like the sound of the... Um, they call buzzards mm-hmm. the ones with the spikes. Yeah. Compared to like the Giga Horse and the War Rig, they all sound so distinctive, and um, it really captured me. I'd say it's probably because of the change in technology, I imagine, but also the um, change in music was so dramatic. Like I was listening to the Junkie XL score just this morning, and um, it's so drastically different to uh, that of the first two Mad Maxes, which are almost entirely orchestral. I was curious as to whether that in particular uh, was because of uh, changes in technology or the ability, the having the like 15 years to think about what it was, the movie was gonna be like. Well, well the, bi- the biggest reason uh, is change in technology. Obviously, the first three films were well before the digital age. Um, and not only the technology of recording music, and, and but, but also in the mixing of music. 
the first Mad Max, as it turned out, was probably the first film ever mixed to time code in the world. Roger, mm-hmm. yes, it was. It was done by Roger Savage, who, who, who um, from Sound Firm, who had been working in England with with um, well-known English mu- musicians. I, I, I think he 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 did some uh, engineered some of the Stones' work and and. And, and many bands came to Australia, worked at, um, and I can't remember the company now, but it was well known because they mixed the Little River Band and all the big Melbourne ba- bands. And he and Byron Kennedy got together. We had no money to mix the first Mad Max. I think we put about $5,000 into it. And Roger and Byron got together and decided to try, try to use the technology of the music industry in film, and that, and we used time code. Um, and Roger, we would we 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 would wait. Byron and I would wait wait around till Roger had been till two o'clock in the morning, often until he'd finished recording um, Little River Band, and then we we work through. I don't know how he did it, but we work through until he got exhausted. He'd get some sleep, go and work with Little River Band, and so on. That's how we got the, the, the track. Um, because of his expertise, he then moved into film, started Sound Firm, and George Lucas and 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 Skywalker were were doing, were just starting to 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 do Time Code, and it, and that's where why Roger went over there to mix Empire right, uh, Strikes Back. So, so, but that was pre digital, and when the digital dispensation arrived. That made a huge drift difference to to sound. You could you could get you could get a lot, uh, just at at every level, the the access you could access sounds you could adjust them quickly, and I think I think what also happened an interesting thing happened on on Fury Road that had not happened before. What used to happen in the past is it, it, it's a kind of triangle. People would load up with often as many tracks as they could so we could get into the mix. You might have some very elaborate effects, might have a hundred and over, you know, close to 100 or even over 100 tr- tracks, which you'd have to mix down into some ultimate sound effect. That created a huge amount of work, and it was often very... Mushy. It wasn't specific. It was, it was exciting to do, but but way too much work. What I decided to do, with in Fury Road, is to do the opposite, to pick one key sound at any moment, which was basically, basically the thing to be much more surgical about it. To, that was the, basically the sound which was going to enhance the moment. Or take the audience through an experience, and forget all about the supporting sounds until you had that sound, um, and then then build around it. Not just start with you know, with. It's like making a meal. Not start with everything in the grocery store, um, but but actually start with one key ingredient and support it with everything else. That was a big philosophical difference. And I, I, I for instance. Dave White, uh, who came on quite early into the editing process, and he might tell you, 
the chains in the fight. Max is, spends the whole movie, or the first 20 minutes of the movie, basically like a shackled dog. And he's chained to Nux. And that chain was very, very critical to the story. And I remember, again, I talked about sound earlier. I always loved the movie uh, Samson and Delilah with Victor Mature, Cecil B. DeMille. And the one thing that really struck me about it was one of the first time, as I said, in the 50s, people really got to understand and play with sound much better. Um, uh, and if, if, you, if you look at Samson and Delilah, Victor Mature, who played Samson, a lot of his power came from he, uh, the sound effects, the chains that he wore, the amulets that he had when he was chained, when he was captured as Samson, were, were very, very memorable. And so I, taking a cue from that, I said, well, the chains on Max are really, really critical. They've got to be accurate and they've got to have very powerful sounds because almost unconsciously, you are aware that he is a prisoner. It's and it's, very his, Sorry. it's his motivation for helping out um, Furiosa, Furiosa yeah, yeah. to get out of it, isn't it? Yes, it, it's very clear motivation. He wants to, wants to get away. So Dave White came on very early. I said, probably the most important sound that you're going to work on in this movie are the chain sounds. And he... He worked and he mixed and got a lot of different chain sounds. He spoke to people um, who had done chain sounds on other movies. And we found something that at least got the idea across. Uh, the sound of the water when Max first encounters the, 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 the women. It was something in his head and the response to the water. So Dave spent a long time trying to get those sounds. I noticed right. that it was like an oasis, the sound of the water. It was like this beautiful thing and it kind of matched uh, the context of the water in that wasteland. Y yes, yes. Mm. So so all those sort of the specificity of those sounds were really, really critical mm. to, to telling of the story. Endless thanks to Daphne Paris, the staff at AFTERS, and George's people at Kennedy Miller Mitchell who helped make this happen. I'm very grateful. Uh, thanks to the AFTERS radio department. This was edited by Jamika Blackman with sound design by Jean-David Legulon. Uh, stills were taken by the very talented Julian Patou. Uh, hope you enjoyed and hope to see you next time.